Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from On the Media, Counterspin, Slate, Radio Nation, and The Young Turks. When presidential speechwriter Michael Gerson announced that he was leaving the White House last week, the administration lost the man who did the most to fill the president's famous eloquence gap. From announcing the then-Texas governor's presidential aspirations to coining axis of evil and hundreds of policy statements in between, Gerson wrote the words that made the whole world listen. New Yorker writer Jeffrey Goldberg profiled Gerson last February, and Jeffrey joins us now. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. So to best understand Michael Gerson, I think we have to hear his words, and this is George W. Bush delivering them at the second inaugural. All who live in tyranny and hopelessness can know the United States will not ignore your oppression or excuse your oppressors. When you stand for your liberty, we will stand with you. Jeffrey, what to you stands out about that speech? The sheer eloquence of it. It's the summation of the president's best instincts and the ideology that he has adopted. Uh, You could trace a a line back all the way to Wilson through Roosevelt and Truman and to Reagan, and this is his adoption of that core idea. And the thing about it that always struck me was you have a fairly inarticulate president speaking these beautiful sentences – just beautiful sentences, really they are. So I became intensely curious about the guy who was writing those sentences, who I think is really considered one of the best speechwriters of the last 45 years or so. And is he one of the best speechwriters because what he has to work with in terms of the, let's be charitable, plain spoken president isn't like Theodore Sorensen working with JFK, who could at the drop of a hat just be eloquent? That's a very interesting question. With Sorensen and Kennedy, you had an eloquent Harvard-educated president having on his staff a very eloquent speechwriter. Here you have a guy who must translate, in essence, a somewhat inarticulate president's thoughts into rhetoric. So that that's where people in Washington became so impressed with Gerson. I know from reports that George W. Bush does redline speeches and say things like, well, I wouldn't say this and this isn't me. He seems to give Gerson much more latitude than he does anyone else who tries to put words in his mouth. It's one of the strangest editor-writer relationships in the world. The speechwriter is the guy who sits in the basement and draws pictures of what his president should be. People always talk in the White House of a mind meld between George Bush and Michael Gerson. And I think that existed because both men think in these sweeping moral terms of freedom and of the transformative powers of American force to make the world a better place. Both are committed Christians. They were also, by the way, in harmony on issues of of race and racial justice. I mean, the best speech in my mind that Gerson ever wrote was the speech that Bush delivered at Gorey Island, former slave trading station in Senegal. It deals with American guilt and the redemptive powers of American democracy to fix what was wrong. Christian men and women became blind to the clearest commands of their faith and added hypocrisy to injustice. A republic founded on equality for all became a prison for millions. And yet in the words of the African proverb, no fist is big enough to hide the sky. 
There are people on the left and even in the center who would say that Bush might not be personally racist, but he can't be considered a friend of African-Americans. But you look at the speech and as a speech, it's flawless. That speech in Senegal, that was an instance where the words really mattered a lot. In fact, there wasn't too much policy behind it. There wasn't supposed to be. It was the equivalent of a wreath-laying ceremony. Exactly. To go back to the second inauguration. When you stand for your liberty, we will stand with you. Now, if I live in Burma or if I live in Darfur and the United States drags its feet, I could look back on that speech and say, you lied. Maybe Gerson, in trying to establish this soaring rhetoric, soared too far. That's an interesting question, and, and we actually talked about this. And he said, what's the choice? We're not going to tell the people of the world that sometimes we're going to be on your side when it's convenient, and we believe in freedom in a sort of contingent way. That doesn't make a speech. But you hit on something that's incredibly serious, which is the issue of fecklessness. Sharansky speaks of 20, you know, 25 years ago, hearing of President Reagan describe the Soviet Union as an evil empire and Sharansky sitting in the gulag and everybody becoming electrified by this because they felt that finally an American president really understood what was going on. So you're right. You've got to be careful with this because we're extraordinarily powerful country. And it's a reminder, by the way, of George Bush 41, who right after the first Gulf War, called for the uprising of the Kurds and the Shiites only to pull out his support for that uprising in Iraq. Do you think the words themselves have ever changed the policies? Oh, I think so, yeah. I know this from conversations inside the White House that there have been times when people have gone to the president and said, you've said this, we've got to try here to match the rhetoric a little bit more. On AIDS, and this is an example where Gerson said in very stark terms in meetings with the president, we will not be forgiven if we don't do more. And finally, I don't know who's going to replace Gerson if anyone can, but do you want to see the next person inspire George Bush to great flights of rhetoric? Or is after six years, in your opinion, is the time for that come and gone and maybe we could spend the last two years with more straight talk? There's nothing wrong with great rhetoric that calls out our better angels. What you'd hope for, Katrina might be the perfect example, is if it's a choice between beautiful rhetoric and building some levees, you'd rather see the levees built. Well, Jeffrey Goldberg, with the wind at your back, this interview has certainly taken flight. And for that, I thank you. Thank you. Jeffrey Goldberg is the Washington correspondent for The New Yorker magazine. Every time the people of this land have come back from fire, flood, and storm to build anew, and to build better than what we had before. Americans have never left our destiny to the whims of nature, and we will not start now. Lovers keep their secrets Baby, I'm not sure if this is love Love can make us greedy Fox host Bill O'Reilly seems to like the U.S. detention center at Guantanamo Bay. He's declared, quote, Guantanamo Bay is being run correctly, and that's necessary for the security of this nation, close quote. 
The National Journal reported in February that many detainees are innocent of any terrorist activity, but O'Reilly isn't buying it. On a recent trip to Guantanamo, where he gave the prison his seal of approval, O'Reilly played up the danger and menace of the detainees there, suggesting it was unlikely that they could be, as he put it, innocent bellboys or barbers who made a wrong turn at Kandahar. It would not be overstating things to say that O'Reilly is fairly certain of the guilt of most, if not all, of the Guantanamo detainees. With this in mind, his answer to a viewer's letter during his June 13th show struck us as ironic. Criticizing an O'Reilly report from Guantanamo, Sam Haraway, a viewer from Colorado Springs, wrote, quote, Bill, by simply dismissing allegations of torture at Guantanamo, you have not provided a convincing argument which supports your point of view. Close quote. O'Reilly's response, quote, Mr. Haraway, I'm from the innocent until proven guilty school. Allegations are just that. If you have proof torture has occurred at Gitmo, please provide it. Close quote. It's just another glimpse into the crazy mixed up world of Fox's most popular pundit. When people run in circles, it's a very, very mad world. world. Children waiting for the day they feel good. Happy birthday, happy birthday. piece ran in Slate on March 2, 2001, less than two months after George W. Bush's first inauguration, an event that figures in the narrative. It's called O'Reilly Among the Snobs, and it's written and read by Michael Kinsley. Do you believe this story? Bill O'Reilly, the Fox News talk show host, is in the Capitol for the Bush inauguration. He is invited to a fancy dinner party. Reluctantly, he accepts, although it is not his kind of thing. According to Newsweek, O'Reilly said he could feel the socialites and bigwigs measuring him. He said they're saying, what's he doing here? One couple even got up to leave, O'Reilly later recalled. Two people left a Washington dinner party rather than share a table with a pro like Bill O'Reilly. Although I wasn't there, I state baldly, it never happened. That kind of snobbery barely exists in America. Wednesday's Wall Street Journal had a front-page feature on country clubs that exclude Jews, treating the matter correctly as an odd cultural cul-de-sac, like a town where everyone plays hopscotch or a website devoted to whistling. Certainly, traditional snobbery cannot hope to compete with today's most powerful social ordering principle, celebrity. O'Reilly, as he himself has been known to admit, has the most popular news show on cable. His book, The O'Reilly Factor, named after the show, was a number one bestseller. When he appears at an A-list, Newsweek's label, social function, nobody wonders, what's he doing here? Yet O'Reilly, like many other people, clings to the fantasy that he is a stiff among the swells. He plays this chord repeatedly in the book, a potpourri of anecdotes and opinions about life in general and his in particular. He had a very strange experience as a graduate student at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, 
which let the likes of Bill O'Reilly through its ivy-covered gates, he is careful to note, in an effort to bring all sorts of people together. Other Kennedy School students, he said, insisted on being called by three names, none of which could be Vinny, Stevie, or Sergey. Their clothing was understated but top quality, and their rooms hinted of exotic vacations and sprawling family property. Winter skiing in Grindelwald? No problem, O'Reilly writes. They tried to be nice, but Bill was nevertheless humiliated in a Thai restaurant to be, he says, the only one who didn't know how to order my meal in Thai. I should explain this last one to those who may not have been aware that Thai is the lingua franca of the American wasp upper class. The explanation is simple. American Jewish parents, only one or two generations off the boat, often spoke Yiddish when they didn't want their children to understand. Italian-Americans used Italian and so on. But wasps had only English. They tried Latin, but tended to forget the declensions after the second martini. So they adopted Thai, which they use in front of the servants and the O'Reillys of the world as well. At least it sounds like Thai after the second martini. When they turn 18, upper-class children attend a secret Thai language school disguised as a ski resort in Grindelwald. The notion that the Kennedy School of Government, populated by swells out of P.G. Woodhouse, reached out to O'Reilly, a poor orphan out of Dickens, as representing the opposite pole of the human experience, would be remarkable enough. But O'Reilly's chapter on, quote, the class factor, chapter one, luckily for me, contains some puzzling counter-evidence. I'm working-class Irish-American Bill O'Reilly, pretty far down the social totem pole, he says. Growing up in the 1960s, he watched his father, quote, exhaust himself commuting from Levittown to work as an accountant for an oil company. Dad never made more than $35,000, he said. That would be $100,000 or more in today's money. Oh, the shame of it. O'Reilly has been downward social climbing. He is actually, and I wish I could say this in Thai to avoid humiliating him with the children, M-I-D-D-L-E-C-L-A-S-S, middle class. He apparently regards that status with just as much horror as do the toffs of his fevered imagination. Why fake a humble background? Partly for business reasons. Joe Sixpack versus the elitists is a good posture for any talk show host, especially one on Fox. Partly out of vanity. It makes the climb to your current perch even more impressive. Partly for political reasons. Under our system, even conservatives need some plausible theory to qualify for victim status, from which all blessings flow. But mainly out of sheer snobbery. And it's the only kind of snobbery with any real power in America today, reverse snobbery. Bill O'Reilly pretends, or maybe sincerely imagines, that he feels the sting of status from above, but he unintentionally reveals that he actually fears it more from below, like most of us. This is not a terrible thing. Reverse snobbery, unlike the traditional kind, is a tribute to democracy, its egalitarianism overshooting the mark, and it's a countervailing social force against growing economic disparity. But when you're faking it, if you're not careful, reverse snobbery can look a lot like the traditional kind. Bill O'Reilly told Newsweek he would never patronize a Starbucks because he prefers a Long Island coffee shop where cops and firemen hang out. Guess what, Bill? Cops and firemen like good coffee, too, and they can afford it. Starbucks is one of the great democratizing institutions of our time. 
You'd know that if you went in there occasionally, you snob. That was O'Reilly Among the Snobs, written and read by Michael Kinsley, who's still with me here in the studio. Now, after you wrote that piece, that was back in 2001, Bill O'Reilly kind of got on your case. He had a complete fit, and he started inviting me on his show, in fact, demanding on the show that I appear and calling me a coward for not doing it. Uh, I was actually on vacation at the time. <laughs> and ultimately, when I got back, I did go on his show. And, and what happened when you went on the show? Well, he had a complete meltdown. He called me a liar and a coward again. He said, you're telling me that I didn't have a modest upbringing. That's the biggest bunk I ever heard. He said that I had been affluent in childhood and he hadn't. And he said, I couldn't call him middle class without personally visiting his mother's house in Levittown. But he said, even if you come, you're not invited for dinner because I would never eat with you. And I thought the whole thing was sort of a dramatic proof of my thesis that reverse <laughs> snobbery is a stronger force than snobbery of the traditional kind. He was completely insulted by being called middle class. But, but he really got exercised when you questioned whether two people got up at a dinner party at the Bush inauguration and left because of his lowly origins. Yes, Alex Chadwick accused me in an interview about the 10th anniversary of Slate of, of, of putting out a publication that never does reporting. Well, I did an enormous amount of reporting on this issue of whether two people had left this ridiculous dinner party. And um, he, he whipped out on TV, he sort of blindsided me with what he said was a letter from the woman who invited me in which she confirmed that two people had left. The letter said, you warned me that this would happen and I didn't believe you, but it did. And I, I pointed out that the issue was not whether two people had left the dinner party, but why they had left it. <laughs> and, and, and the idea that the, the, the two people had seen Bill O'Reilly, knew he was from Levittown, and decided this was intolerable, you know, didn't make sense and wasn't disproved by this letter anyway. But I did try and track down who had written it, he wouldn't say. And the hostess of the party knew nothing about it. It turns out that the, the woman who invited him was his date, who confirmed uh -huh. his story, such as it is. And in fact, this turned out to have been a, a, a more of a reception than a dinner party. People were coming and going all the time. And in short, uh, what Al Franken later proved at much greater length uh, in, in his at least one best-selling book, which is that Bill O'Reilly just makes stuff up. Well, glad we put that one to rest and glad that people aren't uh, so callous in America that they walk out of dinner parties whenever they see someone from Levittown walk in the door. Michael Kinsley, founding editor of Slate, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Andy.
finally on his May 29th show, Fox News' John Gibson accused opponents of the Iraq War of engaging in what he called a slime fest by calling attention to the apparent massacre of 24 civilians at Haditha, or in Gibson's words, quote, an incident in which our troops overreact and commit an arguably criminal act, close quote. But Gibson wanted to make it clear that he was not in favor of what happened at Haditha, saying, quote, I'm against massacres of civilians. I think we all are, close quote. While it's true that a strong majority of people probably are anti-civilian massacre, Gibson unfortunately can't plausibly claim to be among them, not having declared, as he did in March of last year, that democracy in Lebanon was a good thing, because if we didn't like who they elected, quote, we could bomb it back to the Stone Age with a clean conscience, close quote. Gibson praised the November 2004 destruction of Fallujah by the U.S. Marines, saying, quote, Fallujah stands as a shot-to-pieces memorial to both the power of the U.S., but also the willingness of the U.S. to do what it takes, close quote. And even after it was revealed that British police had shot an innocent person as a terrorist suspect last July, Gibson declared, quote, got to admire the cojones of those Brit cops to go after him like that, close quote. Ah, yes, the stirring words of a man firmly opposed to civilian killings. Well, some of the time. We're talking about the media. The media map is updated and out. It's the centerfold of the 10th anniversary National Entertainment State issue of The Nation magazine that's just hitting the stands now and would be hitting your mailbox if you had a subscription. Um, the discussion in the magazine has to do with what's changed and what has stayed the same in the last 10 years. And obviously one of the big things that's changed is the advent of new media, the blogosphere, podcasting, all the rest. Well, where do we stand? You've still got the big monoliths controlling more and more of the most powerful media, but you do have upstart media kind of snapping at the heels of the corporations. And where does that leave us exactly? Mark Crispin Miller is with us in the studio. He's professor of culture and communications at New York University and author of the book, Fooled Again, How the Right Stole the 2004 Election and Why They'll Steal the Next One Too, Unless We Stop Them. Also with us, as I mentioned, Paul Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky, who's the author of the book Rhythm Science from MIT Press. Just after the passing of the Telecommunications Act of 96, which massively loosened the rules on how much influence a handful of huge multinational corporations could exert over our media, The Nation magazine published a special issue on the entertainment state. It looked at who produced America's news and how the companies that produced the news, how their interests intersected across news, publishing, movies, and multinational businesses of different kinds. Now, back then, there were 
four large media owners that dominated the market, the nation published a map of the scene, and it looked like one great sort of scary-looking octopus. Well, now, ten years on, with the birth of blogs and podcasting and indie media, has the picture changed? The media reform movement's grown. A couple of years back, it stopped a... Another deregulation plan in its tracks. But the FCC, by all accounts, is going to return to that very table. And we're seeing a new wave of assaults on public broadcasting and the so-called neutral Internet. Have web blogs and satellite radio and podcasting and all the new media you hear about made an impact? And what, if anything, has changed when it comes to the kind of news and analysis Americans get? Are more voices being heard? Are different voices being heard. Let's start with the discussion. The Nation magazine, this special issue, and it's not the only place that discusses this, but it's a good example. In these times, actually, has an article about the media um, landscape this week. Extra, the magazine Affair, does it on a regular basis. But in the Nation, it's it's striking. You have this kind of fifty-fifty split amongst the contributors between those who, like uh, DJ Spooky over here, believe there is uh, reason for hope in change, and those like you, Mark, who say, uh, uh-uh. uh. No, I don't, Control I don't, is getting stronger. Well, I don't believe that there's no hope, <laughs> or I wouldn't have written for the issue. Well, I just would have gone out and shot myself. You know, <laughs> it would have been much quicker, neater. No, I, I think that there's, uh, you know, abundant grounds for hope, and they primarily have to do with the emergence of an alternative to the mainstream, and particularly with the uh, the growth of a, a pretty feisty media reform movement. That's the purpose of all this kind of analysis is to get people, you know, participating as citizens to try to re-democratize the media. I caution against thinking alternativism, like, you know, sort of coin that word by itself without concerted political action can really uh, take the place of a functioning media system. I mean, what we have now, for example, is the clear prospect of entities like Verizon and AT&T basically policing the content of the Internet. They can decide, you know, what to carry and what not to carry. These kinds of developments are particularly frightening when you've got a movement in charge of the country that is profoundly hostile to the very notion of democracy. Where do we go? Nobody knows. I've got to say I'm on my way. Down. God give me style and give me grace God put a smile upon my face And finally, listener Charles Marion writes in this week to take umbrage at the media snipes directed at departing CBS newsman Dan Rather. Quote, what were the headlines yesterday? Rather departs under cloud of scandal. Dan Rather finally quits having stayed too long. Rather and his cohorts made journalism a force to be reckoned with. They actually told people things that mattered. They were arrogant, even haughty, because the government they went after had shamelessly abused power. Kind of like today. And in order to take on those challenges, you have to be rather fat in the head. You certainly can't accuse the press today of being fat in the head. Submissive would be an apt description. Now that the last giant of the profession has departed, the media can properly return to sniveling for a seat at the table. Keep those comments coming to On the Media at WNYC.org and don't forget to tell us where you live and how to pronounce your name. That last letter, though rather harsh, 
does remind us of the tradition rather represented, that of the intrepid anchor who missed working in the field and perhaps he missed it too much, but rather was more than just an heir to a great tradition. He was memorable, to say the least, in his own right. On Tuesday, complaining that the network had given him too little to do after he lost the anchor chair in the wake of some botched reporting on the president's National Guard service, rather cleared out his desk and left. We said goodbye to Dan last November, but thought we might as well say it again. This is the CBS Evening News. With Dan Rather reporting from CBS News headquarters in New York. Good evening. Danger. War. Killer. Fraud. CIA. Mayhem. Crisis. Horrible. Inflation. Military threat. The flaming debris. Fatal heart attack. It would have been tough for anyone to take the mantle from the person once voted most trusted man in America. But though it was hotly contested, Bill Leonard, then head of CBS News, called it for Rather. I'm delighted to announce that Dan Rather will succeed Walter Cronkite as anchorman and managing editor of the CBS Evening News in early 1981. I seek to be in the Walter Cronkite mold, in the Ed Murrow mold before him. Uh, to the best of my abilities, I want to be an honest broker of information. Well, let me uh, I'll just add a word to that. I don't think that with Dan taking over the CBS Evening News, there's any problem of transition. But despite Cronkite's reassuring words, there may have been a problem or two. At the time, some thought veteran newsman Roger Mudd was the heir apparent, passed over because he wasn't as pretty as Rather. And though Cronkite denies it, there were rumors that Uncle Walter was being rushed into retirement because Rather threatened to switch networks. In that scenario, reminiscent of the film All About Eve, Rather plays a rising star who ruthlessly pushes her mentor out of the way. We don't know about that. But the film's famous quip still works. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. In Dan's case, that night lasted 24 years. He walked off a newscast when it was delayed by a tennis match. He was attacked by a man on Park Avenue who asked, Kenneth, where is the frequency? He briefly ended his newscasts with the word courage, causing waggish competitors like Bryant Gumbel to sign off with Mazel Tov and hot dogs. And if you can't remember those bumps in Rather's Road, you have only to cast your mind back to the monumental pothole he drove over last September, that 60 Minutes 2 story about the president's dubious National Guard record and those equally dubious memos used to back that story up. Are those documents authentic, as experts consulted by CBS News continue to maintain? Or were they forgeries or recreations? We will keep an open mind and we will continue to report credible evidence and responsible points of view as we try to answer the questions raised about the authenticity of the documents. And a week later... I made a mistake. I didn't dig hard enough, long enough, didn't ask enough of the right questions. Here was proof positive, or perhaps just the latest in a career-long series of proofs positive, that Dan Rather had a liberal bias. But reporters are people, too, and everyone, with the exception of Jim Lehrer, has some kind of bias. They just try not to let it show. Cronkite rarely did. When he pronounced the Vietnam War unwinnable, the Johnson administration gasped. Despite a few suppressed tears when President Kennedy died, Cronkite was always clear-eyed and steady in the tradition of network newsmen he helped to establish. Dan was different. He let it show. He let everything show. As at the 19 
1968 Democratic Convention in Chicago. What is I know you won't, but don't push me. Take your hands off of me unless you plan to arrest me. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Walter, you can see. I don't know what's going on, but this these are security people apparently around Dan. And after the Twin Towers fell on September 11th, 2001. If they could go down to ground zero and see the following. See those firemen? <laughs> Take his permit, will you? He was emotional, excitable, occasionally obnoxious. Even when confronting famously combative presidents like Richard Nixon, he just couldn't put a sock in it. Thank you, Mr. President. Dan Rather with CBS News. Are you running for something? No, sir, Mr. President, are you? He didn't like Nixon. We know that. There was hardly anything about Dan Rather we didn't know if we watched regularly, and millions did. He was a bit of a loon, especially on election night. Oh, those Ratherisms. You'd have to say this thing is as tight as the rusted lug nuts on a 55 Ford. As he explained to David Letterman. I grew up around people who talk this way. Oh, I see. So all of these are, are you just recall them from your experience? Yeah, I mean, during the year, if I hear something that I say to myself, you know, that's colorful language, and I think I could use it uh, election night. I never met anyone who talked like that, but I believe him when he says he did. Rather is believable because he is so raw. The first and only extreme anchor in network news. In a time when journalists are suspected of secretly harboring opinions, rather, consciously or not, goes with full disclosure. In an era when anchors are processed and poured into a mold like Velveeta, rather is pungent and runny. He hyped and sentimentalized coverage, but I do not agree with the critics who say that Dan Rather, in all his discombobulated liberalness, compromised the integrity of network news. If anything sinks that once great institution, it won't be leftiness or even craziness. It'll be cowardice. Come to think of it, 18 years ago, when Rather intoned courage at the end of his newscasts, maybe he wasn't talking to us. I haven't eaten in a while, so, you know, everybody who listens to the show on a very regular basis knows if, when if I don't eat, I get cranky. I'm in a good cranky mood, and it's a perfect time to listen to that Paula Zahn clown and just rip her to shreds. So here's uh, Paula Zahn. She sets up the beginning, right, the beginning of an interview with uh, uh, Delaware Senator uh, Joe Biden. Your party is getting creamed as the party of cut and runners, the wobbly, the weak. Some Democrats want the immediate withdrawal of U.S. troops from Iraq. Some think they should be out a year from now. And some think setting a timetable period is irresponsible. So do you understand why that divisiveness compromises the credibility of your party? Well, I don't think it does compromise the credibility. I understand the divisiveness because they look at a united Republican party in a failed policy. Yeah, so I, I, that's we got that from uh, MediaMatters.org. I, 
that's not a question. That's a talking point. That's all that is. That you're the party. You're getting cream because you're the party of cut and runners. How is it a sign of a weakness in the party, really? Other than in a desire for the media to portray everything as a horse race, that people in the party would disagree about whether to start a withdrawal uh, at the end of this year to conclude in the summer of 2007, or just say that George Bush needs to start withdrawing the troops without putting a date on it. How is that anything other than a semantic difference of strategy and a clear sign that an overwhelming majority of Democrats think the troops need to start being withdrawn? The kindest thing I could say about Paula Zahn is that she's painfully stupid. Because uh, if she isn't painfully stupid, then she's doing this on purpose. Right. And that makes it much worse. Look at the beginning of the question. Your party is getting creamed, and then she follows up. But wait a minute. The polls show, actually, the party's up by a historic 15 points in the polls. Now, that might not hold. Who knows what happens, et cetera, et cetera. But right now, it is indefensible to say that the Democrats are getting, quote-unquote, creamed. The Democrats or the Republicans have never enjoyed a lead bigger in the history of polling. So you're... Your party's getting creamed. No, 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 wait a minute. That's a Republican talking point in an effort to paint the Democrats as a weak party that's constantly losing. It is wholly inaccurate. So at the very, very least, just the very beginning of that sentence, somebody at CNN has to pull her aside and say, Paula, you don't know what you're talking about. And that is unacceptable. That's not what we do here at CNN. This isn't journalism. And this question was ridiculous let me let me tell you what i think the equivalent is the exact equivalent if she was going to then spew out a talking point from the other side one that we don't even bring up on this show but it is no different using cutting cutting and running as if it's a real thought as if it's a real policy that anybody is suggesting as to say she brings on uh, senator santorum you know Senator Santorum, your party is getting creamed as the blood for oil party. People don't think we should have blood for oil. Why have you guys consistently gone with this blood for oil policy in the wake of the American people who don't want this? It's the same question. It is exactly the same question. God bless you, Ben Mankiewicz. May God... And everybody in the world will react to... Sorry, would may God do what to me? Take time out of his busy schedule <laughs> to bless you. Yeah, uh, it's... Um, it is, it, is, it, 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 it is exactly the same thing, and we would hear that, and we would say, oh, Jesus, you can't ask that question. <laughs> what the hell kind of question is that? Okay, secondly, now let's get to the substance of what she's saying. Ben's right. Anybody who says the words cut and run in a legitimate discussion, as if Unless you're writing a story about the use of the phrase cut and run, as Dana Milbank did uh, yesterday course. in the Washington Post. Of course. Anyone who uses the phrase cut and run as if it's a legitimate point to make even to ask a question or to have a legitimate discussion over, is an idiot. And I know I'm a bad guy. I shouldn't call people stupid when they're uh, the brilliant Paul Azan, who looks so pretty and blonde on CNN. Uh, Okay, look, let me explain why. Cut and run. Look, we're having a discussion about how many of our kids are dying in Iraq. And how many tens of thousands of Iraqi civilians are dying. And what is the correct strategy? Would more people die or less people die if we did X, Y, or Z? This is a very, very serious issue. And to take it and to boil it down to the people who disagree with us uh, are cowards and weak. And all they want to do is cut and run. Really? Really? I mean, how 
painfully stupid do you have to be to believe that that's what anybody wants to do? That they want to get out there and go, oh my God, I'm so scared. I'm so scared. Let's cut and run. Who believes that that's a legitimate idea that anybody has? Nobody thinks that. Nobody thinks that. The question is, my God, how many people are you going to have die over this senseless, tragic, historic mistake? And now when we ask about whether we should have a, a redeployment, whether we should, what the smart strategy is, and by the way, it might not be redeployment, but have a legitimate debate about what we should do in Iraq, and you want to throw around these horrendous things to say about people and then these catchphrases and these CNN people want to parrot it. It sickens me. They're terrible at their jobs. Terrible. These people shouldn't be called journalists. If I was a a guy who ran ran CNN, I'd have fired Paul Zahn on the spot. You know, know, Tim Russert, uh, who uh, you uh, certainly uh, criticize more than I, but, you know, I mean, he he uses it. it, He loves to mention cut and run. And if you really want to use it, by the way, there's a way to use it. There's to say Republicans are hammering you with this catchphrase, cut and run. Uh, And it seems to play into this overall notion that the Democrats are sort of weak on national security. How do you guys fight that? That's a that's a that's a beginning of an actual question. Right. And Um, and I would say, Tim, uh, it's hard to communicate with someone that has such a lower level of IQ than I do. And I know I'm the bad guy. And that's why everybody I know I shouldn't run for office. And uh, that's demeaning. And you're not going to have a good conversation that way. But, Tim, uh, so we should. I guess what they're saying is we should never leave Iraq. Because any time you ever leave Iraq, that would be cutting and running. Yeah, until, would that not be cutting and running? Until a year from now, when the, if the, if it, until this, this president sees it as his advantage to bring some troops home, then it will just be a smart tactical decision. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. George Casey, the commander on the ground, today said that we will be withdrawing some troops. Cutting and running, George I Casey. guess George Casey's a gutless coward who wants to run away from the insurgents because he's so scared. Let me, what uh, kind of a weakling is George Casey that he would cut and run? We should put more troops. We should stay in Iraq forever. Anyone who disagrees is a cut and runner. I tell you, we're going to take your calls on this at 866-997-4748, 866-99-Serious. But first, because Jenk wasn't here yesterday, we played it at the tail end of the show yesterday, so some of you might not have heard it. Uh, echoing our sentiments uh, uh, completely uh, on cutting and running, uh, uh, none other than uh, Nebraska Republican Senator Chuck Hagel on the floor of the United States Senate. Congress fails in its duty when we do not probe, when we fail, when we do not ask tough questions, and we fail when we do not debate the great issues of our day. There is no issue more important than war. The war in Iraq is the defining issue on which this Congress and the administration will be judged. The American people want to see serious debate about serious issues from serious leaders. They deserve more than a political debate. This debate should transcend cynical attempts to turn public frustration with the war in Iraq into an electoral advantage. It should be taken more seriously than to simply retreat to focus group tested buzzwords and phrases like cut and run, catchy political slogans, debates, the seriousness of war. All right, that's good. That's Chuck Hagel. And obviously, you know, we point out all the time Chuck Hagel sounds great and then doesn't uh, follow through. But there you go. There's a Republican from Nebraska saying saying about saying about what cut and run actually is. Nothing more than a political catchphrase designed to help in an election year when we need to be having serious debate about what to do with those 130,000 men and women in Iraq. 
Uh, anytime anybody mentions cut and run, I would come back with, uh, well, since you're the party of permanent occupation, uh, uh, I guess you never, ever, ever, ever intend to leave Iraq. So can you tell us why you think it's a great idea to permanently occupy the country of Iraq? Because, look, you're saying uh, those guys are cut and runners, and I guess you never want to leave, so you're the party of permanent yeah. occupation. Look, I'm getting shot down on this, but I, and, I, and I understand why. But, I mean, there, there are two Republican phrases. They're the, the only phrases that get used here in this, uh, the, you know, the, po the policy of permanent occupation isn't catching on. I agree with you. It would be an excellent thing for people to say all the time. But the two phrases both come up, both develop by Republican. But, you know, and Chuck Hagel mentions it, focus group. Guys like Frank Luntz go into focus groups. They tested cut and run before it showed up. Of course they did. And the other phrase that has worked that they think, they want this to be a debate in November of 2006 between two choices on what to do with an Iraq. Cut and run or stay the course. And Americans, they're tough. They like to grit it out, stay the course, because stay the course implies that you're not betraying your friends. You hang in there with times are tough. But stay the course and cut and run, they are both, they are both catchphrases. Neither of them is a policy. Thanks for listening, everybody. You know, I kind of blew my whole load yesterday, so I don't really have anything to talk about for the rest of the week, uh, at least not that I can think of right now. Um, I did realize today, however, that I uh, very often do a terrible job of telling you guys about my website or how to contact me or anything like that. The website is bestoftheleftpodcast.com. And you can email me either through that website or uh, at hippiesympathizer at gmail.com, just the way it's spelled in the little artist box you've got there. And maybe I will mention right now, just to give myself a little bit of motivation, that I'm working on revamping the website a little bit. It's uh, I'm, I'm actually going to simplify it because it's... Uh, it's more complicated now than it needs to be. It is only exactly as complicated as it used to need to be. And then I simplified the whole show and left the website kind of confusing. So uh, I will be doing that. And as I see it, now that I have started working on fixing the website, uh, it'll probably be done in a couple of months or so. So look forward to that. Have fun. All right. I've got to say, that's all I've got for you today. Have a good one, everybody. Terrorism is the calculated use of violence or threat of violence to attain goals that are political, religious, or ideological in nature. It follows that the United States is a leading terror state. As the Bush regime continues its war on democracy, log on to thewarondemocracy.com to find out what you can do to fight back. The war on democracy.